This morning we're celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. You might know it better as Palm Sunday or Tactile Worship Day. For those of you who like to do things tactily, it's a great Sunday. Seems to be a lot of people's favorite Sunday, unless you're the parent of a young child or the person who's sitting behind or in front of the family with young children getting whacked with branches. Please forgive us for the whacking. The kids are worshiping. I hope you'll endure that for at least a day. As Matt tells us, we'll get to do it for eternity. So here it goes. On this triumphal entry Sunday, we recognize Jesus. We recognize Jesus in the entirety of who he is. And if you were to walk through the gospel of John, this is what you'd see. I want to remind you that according to the gospel of John, Jesus has always existed. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. If you follow it through in the book of John, you would see Jesus created everything, reminding you of John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. A testimony that Jesus himself created everything you can see and everything you can't see. He made it all. And it starts to build for us this testimony that Jesus, who was fully human, I mean, he was born of a virgin, but was so much more than that. We see that in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if you track along in the gospel of John, you'd see John, you'd see Jesus begin to call disciples to himself, calling people to follow him. And then you'd watch Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, feeding the hungry, healing the stick, restoring the broken, rebuking the righteous and teaching those who would follow him. Jesus begins to shepherd his people. Because as we see in the Gospel of Matthew, it testifies, Matthew 9.36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus would proclaim about himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Jesus tells us this picture, I'm coming to shepherd my people, and then shows us what that looks like. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what we see as we come to John 12, as we start to celebrate Palm Sunday, is this great picture that Jesus, eternally part of the triune God, who created everything, who reveals the glory of God to us, has taken on flesh, has become like us, walks with us, sees our needs, sees our struggle, sees our shortcomings, and rather than condemning us, is willing to lay down his life for us. For beloved, as Jesus moves to Jerusalem, you have to understand, we just walked through the gospel of Mark Three different times in Mark, as Jesus explained to his disciples, he's going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. So for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, it's not an accident. It's a purposeful move for as John would write in chapter 3. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so friends, what we see in all of this, this brings us back to Jesus coming to Jerusalem, that he might be arrested, that he might be beaten, that he might be crucified so that he could lay down his life for a sheep so that you and I might believe there's salvation in his name. Beloved, this is an incredible Sunday when we uplift all that Jesus was and all he was coming to do so that you and I might know salvation. So as we move towards John 12, Let's pray about our time in his word. Gracious Father, as we move to open up your word this morning, we give thanks for it. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Father, we believe you've inspired it. We believe you've preserved it, that we might know the truth. Father, we thank you for its testimony about your son, Jesus, through whom we might have salvation. Thank you that your word reveals his life and his ministry to us. What a good gift that is to us. So, Father, this morning as we open up our Bibles, we ask that you would open up our eyes, that you'd grant us insight, that you'd give us understanding, and that you would show us Jesus high and lifted up and willing to make himself low, so low, so that we might have salvation. Father, would you use this time to transform our lives? Your word has said it would. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So this morning, as we consider the triumphal entry, we consider the fact that Jesus is king and he's worthy of our worship. As I was preparing for this morning, reading through these texts, which to be fair, I've preached every year since I've been here. Just a quick pause. I, I think it's really important for us intentionally and purposefully to think about days like Palm Sunday intentionally. Because Palm Sunday does for us a little bit what Advent does for us for Easter. Advent prepares us for Christmas. I think Palm Sunday starts to tune our minds and prepare our hearts for Easter. Helps us to focus in on Jesus. So every year I've been here, we've kind of taken an interlude in whatever we're teaching to pause into Palm Sunday and Easter. We're doing that. But as I'm studying through Palm Sunday, it occurs to me, I've never done John 12. I've always been in Matthew. And it's funny, looking around, you see almost everybody when they preach Palm Sunday always go to Matthew 21. It is of the synoptic gospels, the fullest account we have. But this morning we're going to be in John 12. It's a different account. And I want you to appreciate it and I want you to see it because what John is doing for us in his 12th chapter is he wants to give us this picture that Jesus is the king and worthy of our worship because he is the Messiah who fulfilled prophecy. John wants us to have this picture that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, I'm not sure you've ever stopped to think through what that means. For Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament means that he has a knowledge of the Scriptures. 
It gives you this grand picture of the sovereignty of God that in some cases, hundreds, if not thousands of years before his birth, things that are written about him that are then fulfilled in his birth, that are fulfilled in the place of his birth, that are fulfilled in donkeys. Like it gives you this macro picture of the sovereignty of God that we might actually appreciate his kingship because he's got rule over all these details. John helps us to see that. And John helps us to see that Jesus is the king and worthy of our worship because he has done incredible things amongst his people that are worthy of us declaring. We're going to see that here in John 12. So let's go ahead and jump in the text. John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Context is always crucial for understanding the passage. Let's set up some context. Let's consider what John is writing. The next day, the large crowd... Now, if we were teaching through the gospel of John, you would have picked up at the beginning of John chapter 12 that Jesus and his disciples had come to Bethany to prepare for the Passover. Now, quite literally, Bethany is like a par five from Jerusalem. I'm wanting you to know you can hit a golf ball from one to the next. Bethany sits outside. You could call it a suburb if you wanted. I don't think they used that back then. Bethany is a suburb to Jerusalem. But Jesus has come there. And what you find is he's gathered in Bethany at a dinner at Simon the leper's house. You can pull that detail out of the gospel of Mark for a dinner in honor of Lazarus. We see that in John 12 too, where Mary pours expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. So it's quite an event that happens. And so the next day, a large crowd, again, John explains that crowd previously, you see in John twelve nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were not were going away and believing in Jesus. So we see that this crowd has gathered. Not only because of the Passover, but because they've desired to see Jesus and this large crowd had gathered because they'd heard of the testimony of Lazarus, the one that Jesus has raised from the dead. They perhaps wanted to see Lazarus for themselves or hear firsthand his testimony, which was only bolstering the reputation of Jesus. So then according to verse 10, it had brought the religious ones of the day not only to detest Jesus, for you could see in the Gospels they'd already made plans to kill Jesus, but now we see them making plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Because he was testifying to the work of Jesus. He's bringing attention to the power of Jesus, and he was showing people that Jesus had power and authority and control And they didn't like that. It was robbing them of power and authority and control. That helps us to understand the rest of the Holy Week, why they're able to garner a crowd to yell, crucify him. So you see in verse 13, and so they, this is the crowd that's gathered, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there are a couple of things going on here we need to pick up on. The first, in order for, to fulfill prophecy, Jesus sends his disciples to procure a donkey for him to ride on. We see that in the other Gospels. And Jesus rides on this donkey into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah, I'll give you the quick flyover. You might remember we preached through the book of Haggai in Advent. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries. They wrote at the same time. They're both post-exilic prophets. Now, I say all that because if you do read through the book of Zechariah, what you would find is Haggai was writing to encourage the people to rebuild the temple, and Zechariah is calling them to repent. And so Zechariah has given these eight visions to Israel, calling them to repent, and he's giving them these oracles. So when you come to chapter 9, Zechariah gives this very clear messianic expectation. This is what Zechariah 9.9 says. Prophetically. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you were to follow that through, you'd actually see a couple of verses later going back to this point. Zechariah 9.16. And on that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For what I want you to see in Zechariah is some 500 years before the birth of Christ, God has superintended Zechariah to write about a donkey, giving a clear testimony that the one who would sit on it would be the Messiah. The one who would sit on it would bring salvation. The one who would sit on it would be the king. Which is to say, if you saw that, if you understood the prophecy about that, then when you witness somebody on a donkey, you would get this understanding. This must be the Messiah. This must be the king. This must be the one that God is sending for salvation. And yet, the disciples didn't see that. The disciples didn't understand. We see that in verse 16, back in John, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and they'd been done to him. What John is telling us is the disciples didn't know. We don't know when they find out, but if you look at Luke, if you'll take Luke into account for just a second, Luke in chapter 4 would tell you that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interprets to them all the scriptures and the things concerning him. Which is to say that if all the meetings that have happened in the history of the world, there's one you want to sit at. It's the one where Jesus walks through the Old Testament and explains to his followers, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. If you were to consider 
Conservatively speaking, conservative scholars suggest there could be at least 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. You want to push it all the way out. Some say as many as 600 that Jesus is fulfilling. That's a long meeting of Jesus pointing out and saying, in the law, me. In the prophets, me. What you should see is how this understanding deepened the faith of the disciples. It encouraged their faith to have an understanding that God, that Jesus, wasn't a one-time event. That Jesus was actually the eternal plan of the Father, and it's evident by all these clues that God the Father has intended throughout history to point to the one he's sending. So that when Jesus shows up on this donkey, there ought to have been like big, bright arrows pointing at him. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one. This is God's plan for your salvation. It should have been evident. John is trying to help us understand that this testimony, this fulfillment of prophecy testifies to us that Jesus is king and worthy of our worship. But it's not the only thing John points to. In fact, we'd find the Old Testament bears witness he's the king and worthy of worship, and so do his followers. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they'd heard he'd done this sign. So if you were to follow 17 and 18 closely, and you almost have to grasp this, you find in verse 17, there are two crowds. One, there's a crowd in verse 17, the crowd who witnesses Lazarus' resurrection and bore witness. There's a group of people who watch Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and testify about it. And then if you glance back at verse 11, you'd find it's this testimony that's actually bringing the Jews to believe. And so that crowd is testifying. Then you see the additional crowd, verse 18. And so this crowd that's testifying, and now you have John pointing back to the crowd that's gathered. The crowd that is laying their coats, the crowd that's waving palm branches and exclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Jerusalem. So you've got people who've gathered together because it's a holy festival. You have people gathered together because they know what Jesus has done and they want to testify to it. They're bragging about Jesus, about his power and his authority. So this crowd gathers together and testifies, Hosanna. Now, you ought to know that that is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that literally means, God, save us. So if you understand the prophecy that God's going to send somebody who's going to bring salvation, and then you declare, God, save us, He's the one who's going to do it. It's the right response to the Savior. God, save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. 
a messianic title pulled from Psalm 118 to declare that this one who's bringing salvation is the Messiah of God. Even the king of Israel, and they ascribe to him the title of king. This is the one that the Old Testament points to. This is the one that his followers are pointing to. But this is the one that our lives are supposed to point to. If you dig through John 12, what you find is John wants to make two claims about Jesus. He wants to claim for you that Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic expectation. He fulfilled prophecy. Therefore, he's worthy of worship. And Jesus has done great things amongst his people. Therefore, he's worthy of worship. John wants us to see that Jesus has done incredible things. And I think times we need to step back and remember this crowd. Because we should remember, just amongst the people in Jerusalem, we ought to remember that the previous night, they'd been at Simon the leper's house. That's a good fact, because Simon had clearly been healed of leprosy, or he wouldn't be living in Bethany. We need to remember that in this crowd is Lazarus, who was once dead and is now alive. We need to be reminded that very likely the man who had been healed in the pool of Bethesda in John 5, who couldn't walk, who would look for every worldly means in order to find his legs, but Jesus pulls him up and heals him, is likely in this crowd. And in John 5, Jesus heals a blind man, gives him sight, and this man is in this crowd because he lived in Jerusalem. But sometimes we miss the fact that in this crowd of people are all kinds of people whose lives have been dramatically changed by Jesus because he healed them and he fed them and he walked with them so that we would see that Jesus is the king and he's worthy of our worship because he has done great works among his people. That's what John is testifying to. That's his claim here in John chapter 12. So what I want to exhort you to now, what do we do with this passage? How do we live out a John 12 reality? I got two things for you. Because we want to use Palm Sunday to set the table for our Holy Week. The first thing I would tell you to do is be intentional about being in your Bible this week. I love that Matt shared. I love what Matt said about spending the time reading through the Holy Week. It is an incredible thing to stop on Monday and consider what happened in Jesus' life. And to stop on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. I'm not asking you to like create a whole thing. Let's just be intentional this week about being in God's word, about spending time looking at this week as Jesus prepares himself to go to the cross that we might prepare ourselves 
for him to go to the cross. And that one of the ways we might do that, one of the ways we might be edified in that, is by considering the prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus in this. You might find your faith is edified. It worked for the disciples. And secondly, if Jesus is king and worthy of our worship because he's done great works amongst his people, the other thing we ought to do is testify about what he's done. Testify about what he's done in your life. Love, do you realize, I make this appeal every year and here it comes again. Do you realize statistically in our area that we live in that there are a whole lot of people who don't go to church every Sunday? Have you ever noticed that? Do you know that Easter Sunday is the one day a year that everyone wants to go to church? Barnett pulled research a couple years ago that suggested like 60% of Americans wish somebody would invite them to church on Easter Sunday. They want to go somewhere. They don't know where to go. Okay, this is about as easy as it gets. It's a chance for you to testify what God has done by just saying, hey, I don't know if you have plans for Easter Sunday. We'd love it if you would join us. It's a simple act. It's a simple act that allows you to testify, God has done something in my life. It allows you to be like the crowd that's testifying. Man, you not believe what happened to Lazarus. It's a chance for you to declare he's king, declare his good works just by inviting them. And secondly, I would say very clearly, be mindful about testifying what he's done in your life. Now, I'm guessing none of you have had leprosy. It hasn't shown up on the prayer list. I'm guessing none of you have died and been raised from the dead. Hasn't shown up on the prayer list either. But the reality is we can look at those stories and sometimes we can undercut our own experiences as if God hasn't done much for me because he didn't do that. And oh, beloved, how wrong you are. For it is an incredible thing that God would take a sinner and redeem their souls. Like all of you should say amen. Like if you accept the gospel that once you were dead and then you're made alive, that's resurrection. The fact that God would save you is extraordinary. It is really a fun reality to walk in our body to see all the people that God is sustaining through suffering. Is that extraordinary? Yes. See, I'm, I'm baiting you now. Yes, it's an extraordinary feat. Is it an extraordinary thing that God is persistently meeting our needs? Yes. Is it amazing all the little ways that God has superintended blessings around us? Yes. So even on your worst day, you ought to be able to testify, man, Jesus has been so good to me because of X, Y, and Z. That's what's happening in this passage in some part. That's why there's a crowd. Because people were testifying to what Jesus had done. People wanted to see it. They wanted to hear about it. So I want to make the case to you 
one of the implications of a John 12 Palm Sunday would be you testifying about what God has done in your life. For if he's given you salvation, that's a beautiful thing. I recently this year got a an extra job. I'm not great at it yet. I'm working on it. Katie asked me if I could help her with a one on Wednesday nights. I'm not great with kids. I'm good with mine. Everybody else's I'm iffy. I had a seminary professor who used to say that every time God, every time we declare what God has done is an opportunity to worship him. I was actually looking through my seminary notes as we found the verse, Psalms 105.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among his peoples. Do you understand? Giving God praise is declaring what he's done. So in a one, we clap. We clap. We clap. We give God praise because we want to make known his deeds among his people. Love, I want to encourage you to that this week. That as you are preparing your hearts for Easter, mindful that Jesus purposefully is moving to the cross, mindful that Jesus is fulfilling prophetic prophecies in a way that ought to edify your soul, mindful of the fact that this crowd is built up based on the testimony of people, that you would use your testimony for what he has done to give him worship, to lift him up, and to gather people together who need to be edified and encouraged. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are thankful for this Palm Sunday where we have palm branches to wave because you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our worship for these great macro things, these things that transcend our understanding that hundreds hundreds of years before you were born, you declare in your word that these things would be and they are. And God, that's incredible. And you're worthy of worship. And Father, you're worthy of worship for the ways you've healed us and sustained us and carried us and blessed us. Father, you're worthy of our worship for all of these things. So Father, would it be as we step into this holy week, mindful that you are headed to the cross for our salvation, that we would declare your wondrous deeds to the people. That they might hear, they might see, they might savor, and they might be drawn in. Father, might it be that you would use our testimonies to bring people to Christ. That they would see in us your incredible work, even if it seems plain to us. Father, we are so thankful for your son. Help us to worship him well and be mindful of his suffering this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.